All right, let's take our Bibles, and we're going to be in two places today. One is going to be Second Chronicles chapter 33 through 35, and the other account in the Bible to where our story is today is going to be, if you can plug into Second Kings chapter 23. Second Kings is a little bit before Second Chronicles, so we're going to be Second Kings 23 and Second Chronicles chapter 33 through 35. As you're turning there, um, I don't know if you guys have kept up with any of the political happenings that have been going on uh, lately, but I thought it was very, very interesting uh, about Newt Gingrich winning uh, the South Carolina Republican primary. And when you look at the New Hampshire primary, Newt Gingrich was at 9.4%. And then at least late last night when 99% of the precincts, and this is not a political endorsement for either party, but just a statement of fact, and you'll understand in just a few moments why I would mention this, um, 40.4%. So how does one go from 94 to 40.4%? Well, there was a small um, endorsement by none other than Chuck Norris several days before. And so does somebody say, well, does Chuck Norris, did he predict that Gingrich was going to win? Well, we know that Chuck Norris doesn't predict Chuck Norris appoints, all right? So um, just wanted to make sure if anyone was confused about what's happening in the nation, it all goes back to Chuck. So that has absolutely nothing to do with today's message, but it's a little lesson on how things actually work in the country. If you have your bulletin, your worship guide, we have a statement there on the back, and I would like you to read that with me. You don't have to read it out loud, but there's something, and I want to make sure that this statement is not misunderstood. It begins, While there are some who have been raised in Christ-loving families... The majority of people today grew up in families that either did not believe in Christ or gave him or gave mere lip service to Christ, but never actually followed him. Now, right here in a church setting, this statement could be offensive. You say, now, Jeff, you're giving a sermon not in a atheist gathering, but you're giving a message from God's Word in a Christian church. Why in the world would we make a statement such as that, while there are some who have been raised in Christ-loving families, the majority of people today grew up in families or a culture that either gave Christ mere lip service, like, yes, I'm a Christian, but the life never matched up, or they simply say, I don't believe in Jesus at all. And to support that, I want to give you a statistic here from the Barna Research Group. And the title of the article is, you guys see that there on the back row? Alright. The title of the article is, 70 Million Americans Feel Held Back by Their Past. The first aspect of the article says, and I quote, One third of Americans are struggling, and this is not just Christians, this is Americans the whole gamut, are struggling to live to their, quote, fullest potential. One out of every three adults in this country say they are not living to their fullest potential, including those who say they are, quote, not at all, 6%, not much, 26%, and a slim majority of adults, 57%, feel they are mostly, quote unquote, fulfilling their potential, while only about one out of eight, 12%, feel, quote, completely fulfilled. Very interesting. You say, now, Jeff, um, 
what does that exactly mean? The article goes on to say, overall, 70 million Americans, 31% of adults, feel, quote, held back, listen, or defined by something in their past. See, now that may be true for all Americans, but why would, why would you, Pastor Jeff, make such a statement here in our bulletin today about people who even come from a so-called Christian background? The Barnum Research Group also uh, reports that, quote, on the one hand, four out of five self-identified Christian adults, 81%, say they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today. More than three out of four self-identified Christians, 78%, strongly agreed that spirituality is very important to them. Yet, listen, yet less than one out of every five self-identified Christians, not one out of every five Americans, but one out of every five of the small group that claims, yes, I am a Christian full bore, not culturally, but I've been saved and I'm following Christ. 18%, only 18% claims to be totally committed to investing in their spiritual development. About the same proportion of self-identified Christians, 22%, claims to be, quote, completely dependent upon God. Wow. So why in the world will we make a statement such as, while there are some people who have been raised in Christ-loving families, if that's you today, if you were raised in a family to where your parents taught you that Jesus was Lord, they demonstrated that through their life, you should praise God, and if your parents have gone on to be with Jesus, you should thank God for them today. Amen? You are blessed. But... The majority of people today grew up in families that either did not believe in Christ or either gave mere lip service to Christ but never actually followed Him. So the reason why we would make a statement such as that is because we live in a culture that is incredibly corrupt. Okay? This is not a doom and gloom statement. Alright, I don't have a sandwich board on me. Y'all okay? But this is just a statement of fact that our culture is in trouble. Have y'all noticed that? And we're going to take a dive into the Old Testament tonight, old school. Y'all ready for this? Okay, we're going to dig in and understand that God's Word is always relevant to our lives. But in order for us to understand, for us to walk through this passage, imagine, if you could with me, imagine, let's say that the year is 2048. Okay? Let's imagine that the Constitution of the United States of America has been replaced by pure executive order of the president, or should we call him the potentate, or the king. And not only has the country changed, but we're just imagining if this happened and we were alive then, that you could come to buildings like this that used to say things like church, or Christian, or Baptist, or Presbyterian, or Methodist, or Bible church. But instead of seeing something like that, we would see a sign that said, Religious Center of Toleration. And when we entered into the building, it wouldn't look like any church that you and I had ever seen. Now we're talking about a more traditional setup such as ours, or even a more contemporary, more modern setup. All of that would be scrapped. 
And in fact, what you would find when you walk in are things that would make an owner of a quote-unquote gentleman's club blush. Imagine. You go in and you see and you are invited to do things that even by certain segments of our culture would be considered incredibly corrupt, perverted, and, and degenerate. And you ask yourself the question, where are the church leaders? They're dead. Because a number of years before, people of faith, people who loved God, people who loved people, and by the way, if you love God, you will love people. Because God is love, and if we truly love, then we know God. If we do not know how to love, we do not know God. Those people stood up to the president slash king and said, no more of this. But the president had such power, been imprisoned, and he killed every major leader who would oppose him. So coming into what used to be people would call the house of the Lord, the house of worship, we would be invited to do things that would turn anyone's stomach, all in the name of religious toleration, tolerance, and being equal. In fact, if you opposed the President King, you would be classified as an enemy of the state and would simply be executed. The United States of America, as we know it, would be no more. Now that scenario, which most of us have serious looks on our face right now, saying, over my dead body, if we could translate that scenario 2,600 or so years ago and go around 6 miles, 6,000 miles away from here to the land of Judah, we would understand partially what it was like to grow up as a young man named Josiah. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, I hope that you're there with me. It says in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of, his, of David his father. I love this. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You say, Jeff, what was the setting like there? Well, if we could back up to chapter 33 in Second Chronicles, we would find a man named, there in verse 1, named Manasseh. And Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. And Manasseh became a king when he was 12 years old. In fact, Manasseh's dad, this would have been Josiah's great-grandfather, was alive when the prophet Isaiah was alive. And Isaiah and Josiah's great-grandfather had an incredibly close relationship. But yet, for some of us, we can look back in our family history and see things that we're not proud of. And I'm not even going to ask for an amen. Most of us can look back and say, there's things, there are people in my past, in my bloodline, that I am not going to advertise. Let me give you the rundown on what Manasseh did. He became king when he was 12 years old. Verse 2 in chapter 33 says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Here are a few things that he did. He rebuilt the high places in 2 Kings 21.3. That was a place for pagan worship. Read in there, and I'm not going to get down and dirty with this, but read in there horrific perversion with a person of the same gender, person of the opposite gender, 
or a group of persons in the name of pagan religion. He set up the ability for the nation as a whole to be involved in that. He set up a wooden image in the temple. He built pagan altars inside the temple. This is all from 2 Kings 21. And then there was a bold and courageous leader, and you can find this online, ccel.org. It's a place where you can find ancient Christian documents. There's a book called, it's a very short book, it's called The Martyrdom of Isaiah. If you've ever been flipping through the Old Testament and you come across a lot of these minor prophets and a preacher's saying, let's turn to Obadiah, and you've got one page in your Bible for Obadiah, right? And you're like, I just missed, oh, I just missed Obadiah. But if you turn back, you find this monstrous book called Isaiah. 66 chapters of pure awesomeness. Isaiah was alive. And Jewish history says Isaiah opposed Manasseh. And Jewish history says that Manasseh was filled, listen to this, there's a name, Belial, which is a code name for Satan in Jewish history. They said that Manasseh was so filled with demons and so evil that the Jews in, in Jewish history believe that Manasseh, check this out, Josiah's grandfather was filled with Satan himself. And so what he did, Isaiah began to oppose what the king was doing. The king got the false prophets. The false prophets arrested King Isaiah, or or prophet Isaiah, the man who had foretold the coming of Jesus. The one who walked into the temple in Isaiah chapter 6 and God appeared to him and the whole house shook. And then he began to be broken for his sin because he said, God, I've got a dirty mouth. And I live in amongst of people who've got dirty mouths. And God cleansed him and forgave him. And then God said, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And God used him in an amazing way. And when Isaiah was an old man, he stood up to the young king. And he says, I will not take any more. And guess what the young king Manasseh did? He got the old prophet Isaiah. And this is what Jewish history. We're not trying to be dirty. This is what happened. They put him inside a hollow log. They got two men on one end of it, each end of a wood saw. And they saw the prophet Isaiah in two. That's Josiah's grandfather. And if that wasn't as bad as it could get, he would, he actually sacrificed his own children to a pagan god called Molech. What they would do is they would build a huge fire under this pagan god that was either made of wood, of, of stone or something that could be, that could be heated up. Instead of so the priest would, would, would play the drums, a very deep drum to drown out the cries of the children. Manasseh made it possible for there to be witchcraft in all the land of Israel. In 2 Kings 21, it says that he even put a a symbol of the Asherah, which was a pagan sex symbol, inside the temple. Can you imagine that? The temple that King Solomon built for the glory of God was now a place where people could come and blaspheme God. Not saying that it's okay to come and do it, but the king himself encouraged the people to do it. He killed innocent people. He filled the, the Bible says uh, in 2 Kings 21 16 that Manasseh was so evil that he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with innocent blood. And that was Josiah's grandfather. And you think that his dad would have learned something, right? Because what happened near the end of Manasseh's life, God brought the Assyrians in. And it tells us in, uh, in Scripture that the Assyrians brought Manasseh out by hooks. 
In other words, what they did, this is, this is a terrible thing, but this is what God used to bring repentance to Josiah's grandfather. He had lived for so many years in sin, they actually, what they would do, now this, this may send some of you into a panic, but what the Assyrians would do, they're the first terrorist nation, was not an issue of if the Assyrian soldiers would break rank and commit acts of terrorism, it was expected that they would. They would either put a hook through the jaw or through the mouth, through the lip. And the Bible says, and this is there in um, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 10 through 20. It says that they led him out with hooks. And there, in a prison cell, in his own blood and his own hopelessness, his grandfather repented and got saved. And some Bible scholars actually think that, do you remember when the Apostle Paul says, I am the chief, I'm the greatest of sinners? They say that he's possibly quoting what Manasseh is rumored to have said about himself. Now imagine that. You've got your grandfather, but he finally gets saved at the last minute of the fourth quarter of his life. Well, what happens to your dad, Manasseh's son? The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 21 through verse 25, that Ammon was Josiah's dad. And here's how bad Ammon was. It says in verse 23... And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But, imagine, before we read this next phrase, imagine all of the filth and all of the wickedness that Manasseh had done. The Bible says that Ammon, his son, Manasseh's son, Josiah's dad, incurred guilt more and more. This is like a phrase in the Bible saying that he is so incredibly corrupt, there are not words to describe. And he was so bad that his people murdered him after he was only king for two years. And then there's you and there's me. Imagine that we're eight years old and we come to the place to where our father has just been murdered Our grandfather led the nation deep, deep into the heart of the worst kinds of sins imaginable. And you and I, as an eight-year-old child, look around and know that something is wrong. Have you ever noticed about children? They're able to notice some things that adults don't notice. You know, a lot of times children don't know as much as we do in terms of knowledge. But children, they have, that's why Jesus says, He who comes to me must come as a little child. There's something about a child to where they can recognize evil. Amen? And there's something about us that we can recognize that when evil is committed against a child, that is wrong. That's why there's never been a lecture at probably any university in the world on why people should cry out against child abuse. We just do cry out against child abuse. Amen? And against things like uh, kidnapping and, and torture. And let, me, let me just say a, a word here um, when it speaks about Manasseh and, and, and sacrificing the children to a false god. Why, why would they do it? Why, uh, why in the world would you as a person in any culture at any time take a precious little baby, most of the time they were males, you would take that child and there would be a giant roaring bonfire and there would be a cruel looking demonic figure carved out of 
cruel stone, and you would take that child and toss it into the fire. Fire? What the? I mean, who does that? They had minds, and here's the reason why they did it. They believed that if they sacrificed to this false god who controlled the weather pattern, that there would be favorable weather patterns that would produce more crops that would in turn produce more money. I'm just going to make a note here. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. I want to say, may God help us as a nation. May God break our hearts over the abortion of over 50 million children. Amen, church? Here's an article. If you would like a copy of it, you can have one. I don't have time to go into it, but it's by Russell Moore. It's called The Gospel in an Abortion Culture. You know, often abortion is so normal today, it's so, it happens all the time, that we lose sight of the travesty of young lives being taken before they see the light of day. And we also lose sight because the culture at large tells us that for a woman, that when you go and have an abortion, the, the, the abortion industry tells you, ladies, you've got a problem. It's not the right time in life for you to be having this child. Maybe you're working on a degree. Maybe you're in your career. Or maybe you're not married. It's just not good for you. Come to us and we'll take away your problem. Ladies, that is not the case. It only makes it worse. I actually have a friend um, in South Carolina who um, he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant before they were married and he advocated that she have an abortion. And he says, Jeff, one of the things that is never talked about in today's culture and media, Republican, Democrat, you name it, anything across the board is the psychological horrific warfare that goes on in the heart of a father. Not just the mother, but the father as well. I want to be very, very honest and straightforward with you today. Make two points here. That abortion is sin. It is something to where life begins. This is not my opinion. It is not your opinion. It is simple biological fact out of a textbook that life begins at conception. And what is a human? As a human comprised of consciousness, as a human comprised of a certain level of intelligence, if we take that route, then we could say that the person who goes into a coma is no longer a person because they no longer have consciousness. And that's not a road that any of us, I believe, are prepared to go. It is a human from day one till the day that they die made in the image of God. I'll tell you, there is judgment coming on abortionists. There is judgment coming upon those whose consciences... This is tough stuff, but I'm going to say it because I love you and because it needs to be said. There is judgment coming upon those who take the lives of the innocent. You read all the way through the Old Testament. You see God time and time again. And He's serious business about those who would take the lives of those who cannot defend themselves. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 24, He commands followers of Himself to deliver those who are drawn away towards death. It will not solve the problem. I want to make a very, very honest here. If there's anyone in this church, a lady, or a family member, grandchild, daughter, and they become pregnant before they're married, please do not try to hide your shame by committing something against the child. We as a church family, we believe in grace. We believe in forgiveness. We believe in life. This church puts their money where their mouth is. We will help you with the child. We will, by God's grace, help that child to come into the world. We will find it a family for the glory of God. This church, we are not a group of people who come on Sunday morning dressed up for a Christian prom. Amen? We care about people. So let's not be deceived 
But there's not sin in the world. Because what Satan will tell you, if you men have advocated that your wife or girlfriend have an abortion, or ladies, if you have had one, he will tell you, you are a murderer just like me and just like my demons. And guess what? At the end of the day, Jesus says he who hates his brother is a murderer in the heart. But that's where the grace of God comes in. That's where the grace of God. Can you imagine the, the, the blackness and the dirt on Manasseh's heart as he sat in that prison with a hook through his face with foreign captors making fun of him and he remembers all of those thousands and thousands and thousands of children that he could have saved but he advocated that they be sacrificed to a false god. Can you imagine the brokenness and repentance? But guess what? God saved Manasseh and God can save any abortionist. He can save any woman who's had an abortion. He can save and change any man who's advocated that his wife or girlfriend have one because we serve a God who's stronger than our sin. Amen, church? It's the fact that we have sin, the fact that we have a baggage from the past, the fact that we study characters like Manasseh who are so horrible that the Jews said the only way he could have been that bad is if Satan himself was inside him. If God can save him, God can save any person today. And that's what God is in the business of doing. So what did Josiah do as a young man? He began to there in verse number 3. In the eighth year of his reign, he's 16 years old. 16 years old. While he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places of the Asherim. Think, and you can do Google search on this, think perverted images for pagan immorality worship. We'll just stop it there. And the card and the metal images. Okay, question. Where were you and I at 16? Students, Hopefully you're where Josiah is, alright? If you're a student here today. Uh, is 16 years old. 16 years old. And most of the time you take a 16-year-old guy and he's so awkward and nervous or he's either one of these guys who wants to let everybody know that he's cool, right? I, I love guys who are too cool for school, Amen. Because you, know, you walk up to you know, the, the teenagers, and I love youth ministry, man, I did that for two years. You walk up and you're like, whoa, guys, step back because the coolness hurricane is just, you know, and you just kind of make fun of them. And it's great. But imagine, I mean, 16 years old, what would you be thinking about if you were king of an empire? The same thing that many 16-year-olds today think about who have come from broken families. The same thing that 16-year-olds today think about when they see brokenness at their school, when they see sin in every area of their life, and they step back and they say, something is wrong here. There is something in this scenario that does not add up. And what did he begin to do? He began to seek God. He began to seek God. And, and then, guess what he does here in, in verse number 4? Notice here, he, he's a young man, and this happened uh, over a span when he was 16 and 20. Newsflash. The whole concept of... I love When we're 13 until we're about 30, that we're a young person and we're supposed to not care anything about God even though we got quote-unquote saved when we were seven. And it's that time, oh, they're just out having fun. No, they're rebelling. They're wasting their life. 
for students, so you can tell this to your grandkids or kids who are not here, please, for the glory of God, don't waste your life. Live for Christ. Do what Josiah did. No, no this is amazing. He's, sick. He's a teenager and he does this. And they chopped down the altars, verse 4, of the Baals in his presence. You know a 16-year-old is going to be loving that. I mean, he's in charge of the destruction crew. He's like, take it down, baby. All right? And he cut down the incense altars and that stood above them. He broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them. He's like, don't just chop down the symbols of sin. Don't just destroy sin in my family heritage. I want you to make dirt and dust out of it. Isn't that good? Y'all all right? Is Josiah too hardcore for us today? Let's see. What's it say in verse 5? He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Right there, we begin to think that he's crazy. But what he was doing is he was declaring war upon the false worship that involved the sacrificing of small children to a pagan god. Verse 7, and he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And go to verse number 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign. So, So here he is, a man who's 26 years old. For about 10 years he's been trying to search after God. He says, something's wrong in my family's life. When I look at my country, it seems like every... Something's right. This is not the way that life should be. And what he does is he tells the priest, go into the temple. Go into the place that's turned into a center of religious toleration. Now that we've ripped everything out that shouldn't be there, go in and just clean it. And so they were going in and they were clean. Can you imagine Can you imagine the temple of God being in such a state that when they began to tear away the rubble and clear away the dust, guess what they find? They find verse 14 in 2 Chronicles 34. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. They found the Bible! I, I, what happens to a culture when everything begins to be messed up? They lose sight of God's Word. And when we were to rediscover the Bible, that's when revival starts. Because notice what happens here. Then uh, it says in verse 18 uh, that, they, that they found the book. In verse 19, and when the king heard the words of the law, when he heard the words of the law. Can you imagine being raised in a society to where God's word was not preached, it was not spread. Check this out. Imagine, if you're, you're new here with us today, that, that's totally fine. That's your, your first time around church. We, we uh, welcome you and we welcome questions. All right? We don't believe in blind faith. We believe in true faith. But can you imagine what it would be like to be raised in a society to where you had not heard the word of God at all. And then they find something and you say, well, maybe that's the missing piece. And you as the king, you're 26 years old, you've been searching God for 10 years and you say, read it to me, priest. And the priest stands up and he reads the Bible and the king tore his clothes. 
This was a symbol to say, even though I'm the king, I am guilty. I am a sinner. And do you ever notice when God's word is opened up and we simply read it, sometimes we want to run away from it. Sometimes in our past, when the Lord was drawing us to be saved and when God's word was read at church or when someone came and shared the gospel with us, it was like that the gospel, when, it, when we heard about Jesus, it was like a, a razor sharp arrow that pierced into our heart and told us, you're a sinner and God can save you. And so what Josiah did is he said, go inquire of the Lord and see there in verse number, um, verse number 21, for the great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So here's the king. They find the Bible. The Bible is read. And then he asked the, the, the prophets. It was actually a lady prophet, a prophetess named Holda. Sounds like a tough lady, right? Holda, Olga, right? Go tell the prophetess Olga. So she, yeah, never mind, not, not Olga. Hold up. And so hold up. It goes to the Lord. And the Lord gives her a word to give to the king. And note what Josiah does in chapter 35. He says, everybody get together. So he calls a national prayer meeting. And he says, we're going to do the Passover. How many of you guys remember um, Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments? Right? Technicolor. Where, where the, the angel of death is that, that kind of green fog that moves throughout the scenes. And, and the Passover was something that was done to let people know that there's going to be a sacrifice coming in the future. Remember they put the blood over the doorpost? And why would they do that? It's because it was symbolic to say that whoever the blood is covering, the death angel will pass over. And for us as New Testament believers, it means that whoever is under the blood of Jesus, whoever is trusted in Jesus, that when they die, they don't go to hell, but they have a place in heaven and they've been forgiven of all their sins. So what he does, and this is amazing. And Bible scholars, if you read anything about Josiah, they say he goes beyond David in his obedience. He says, we're not just going to read the Bible. Praise God, we're going to do the Bible. Y'all all right? Hey, well, we're not just going to read this like a religious book. When we read it and when they read it, it talked about Passover. He says, if the Bible says it, we're going to do it. So they do it. And Josiah, when he died on the field of battle a few years later, he went in bravely to battle to meet the Egyptians. He was wounded by the archers and he told his, his, his men in the chariots, he said, take me out of the battle because I am mortally wounded. The Bible tells us that Josiah was mourned and he was talked about for generations. And I believe that today there are people all across America that God is calling up to be Josiah's. You say, Jeff, when you read that statistic here about those who struggle with commitment, that's me. When you read about those 70 million Americans feel held, they feel held back by their past, that's me. I've had things happen in my past. And I feel that every time I try to be a Josiah, every time I try to deal with my baggage and my family's baggage, that it gets caught. Let me give you five principles from what we studied this morning of how to break with the past. Number one, this comes from chapter 34, verses 3 through 7. You can't make a treaty with sin. Amen, church? You can't make a treaty with it. Remember how he went off? Verse 4, they chopped down everything. They made powder out of it. Josiah understood that sin is deceptive. Remember uh, King Solomon? King Solomon tried to make a treaty with sin, didn't he? 
He said, we're going to serve the Lord, but we're also going to allow all these people to come and they're going to serve other gods. In fact, in order to be... Y'all track with me on this one. In order to be politically expedient, I'm going to do what I know is wrong in order to gain political points. That's how Solomon met his demise. Josiah said, that's in my family history. I will not deal with it. You say, Jeff, what are those things that we should wage war against? John Wesley said this, the world is anything that cools my love for God. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose hearts. And when we resist Satan, the Bible says he will flee from us. So number one, breaking with the past under, it has to become to a place where we say, Lord, as best you know my heart, I'm going to ask you to help me to declare war on sin. You know one of the reasons why I don't drink? This is not the only reason why I don't drink. I've got a lot of alcoholics in my family past. You know the way that you deal with that? If you've got alcoholics in your bloodline, you don't get near the snake. If you don't play with snakes, you won't get bit. Say, oh, hold on, Jeffrey, are you? No, this has nothing to do. No, no, I'm just using that as an illustration because every single one of us, our family, struggle with different things. You ever wonder why that's before the Bible talks about the sins of the fathers? There are some families that are known. You name it, any place in the U.S. Yeah, that family, you better watch it. They've got some short fuses, <laughs> right? And I know some people like that. It's like, boy, they got some short fuses, man. You better not be playing with fire around them. But when that, every single one of us understands that we have a proclivity, a tendency towards some type of thing that will keep us in the past and keep us from following God, Josiah declared war on it. So number two, the way that you break with the past is you allow God's word to take center stage and your life will change. Remember when Josiah allowed the Bible to be read, but not only was it read, but he did what it said. Now sometimes... When we hear the Bible or we read it, we say, you know what, Jeff? I want to take the interpretation that has less uh, implications for me. One of the things that I encourage you to do is to make the commitment in your heart to say, Lord, whatever you tell me from your word, I'm going to do it. Because if I begin to edit the Bible, guess what the Bible is going to look like in the end? It's going to look a lot like me. Number three, the way you break with your past is you allow God's word to penetrate your heart and then you'll live with the lenses of eternity. You remember that country song, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything? It's in the course. Well, that's not good enough for a Christian. We're not supposed to just stand for something, but we stand for Christ. And when we do that, we will see with the lenses of eternity. In other words, to make choices now that will end up impacting people for all eternity. Number four, breaking with the past requires that our heart cry begins to be for God and to God. And He will hear us and He will heal us. And finally, in number five, breaking with the past, God allows us to find Him if we seek for Him. I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy watching some of those old treasure movies, right? Like Treasure Island or King Solomon's Mines or the Indiana Jones movies where they're searching for this priceless lost treasure. You know what Josiah did? He heard the Word of God and he searched it and he obeyed it. You say, now Jeff, what, what relevance does the Bible have to our life? 
The Bible is not just a dead book because check this out. Please hear this. When we read God's Word and we open our heart to Him, we discover the greatest treasure in the history of all mankind. We discover the Lord Jesus Christ. We discover the One who can forgive us of our sins. We discover the One who is able to break the baggage to help us to break from any type of past sin. We uncover the One who loves us not because of just who we are, but we, He loves us because He's stronger than what we've done. When we discover Jesus, we discover the greatest treasure because Jesus is the only thing that doesn't grow old over time. Remember that old, old hymn, uh, Sweeter as the Day Goes By? And you say, now Jeff, I know a lot of people in my life, there's a lot of people not serious about Jesus. Let it be that when they talk to you, when they think of you, you're like Joshua. And Joshua stood before the nation of Israel and he basically said, you know what? You guys can do what you want to, but as today, for me, and my house, everything I'm responsible for, we will serve the Lord. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes as we come to this time of commitment. That is the call of God. That if we could sum it up into one succinct message, breaking with the past involves breaking with the pattern. That's a change of direction the Bible calls repentance. Josiah was a man who understood that his world was messed up, that his family was messed up, but he began to seek after God. If that is your heart cry today. If you're sitting here and saying, you know what, Jeff, I, I know that there is something missing in my life. There's no desire or hunger for God. I've been to church or maybe I'm new to church, but I know that I need something to change. I need to break with the past. I'm ready to begin a new life. And now I know that it's Jesus that I need. It's not just to read Bible verses, but it's to obey the God of the Bible. And friend, that is God speaking to your heart this morning, telling you that Jesus is the one who can save you. But without Jesus, you're on your way to hell. But because He's so full of grace and mercy, He offers you the chance to be forgiven. Just right now, place your trust in Jesus. Just give your heart to Him and ask Him to forgive you of all your sins and to become your Lord and your Savior. And then there may be some Christians here today who say, Jeff, I've been saved, but I, I still struggle with my past. I feel like I'm held behind by those things that happen. For you this morning, the call of the Lord is to simply understand that God's grace to you is not dependent or determined by your past good deeds or bad deeds, but it's only by His grace. Ask the Lord to cleanse you from the things that have held you back. Give them to Him and experience the grace of Jesus. Because the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, nine that if we confess our sins, which means to say the same thing, which means to bring no excuses, which means it's not him, it's not her, they, none of that. It's all, quote-unquote, me, and confessing that to the Lord. And he says, I will forgive you and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We open this front, this altar. If you need to come and pray for those in your life who you know are bound by things in their past. Father, we ask that you would use this time, that you would help people. 
Um, When we give the invitation, those who have been saved here in the service, that they would get up out of their seat, and Lord, that you would give them the courage to walk down and take me by the hand, and in so doing, they're giving testimony that you have changed their life. Father, we ask also that for those that you're calling to be uh, full-fledged members of our church through letter of baptism, that you would draw them to come. Most of all, God, we pray that you would use this to change our hearts and have our affections rooted in you. In Jesus' name, amen.